Let's read Psalms 28. I'll read verse 1, you verse 2, me verse 3 and following. Let's read these nine verses, all right? Unto thee will I cry, O Lord, my rock. Be not silent to me, lest if thou be silent to me, I become like them that go down into the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. Draw me not away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity which speak peace to their neighbors, but mischief is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them after the work of their hands. Render to them their desert. Uh, because they regard not the works of the Lord, nor the operations of his hands, he shall destroy them and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because he hath heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusteth in him. I am helped, therefore my heart greatly rejoiceth, and with my song will I praise him. The Lord is their strength. He is their, uh, the saving strength of his anointed. Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. Yeah, I tell you right up front, this is a good psalm. Just from reading that, there's some great promises. And uh, once again, we find the writer going from really a point of despair to going back to the place he's trusting God and, and just uh, uh, thanking God for what he's going to do about the situation. So I want to talk about this psalm tonight. If you'll leave your Bibles open, let's pray together. Father... Bless your word tonight, I pray, and Lord, may we meet ourselves in this psalm, and may our hearts be lifted up and be caused to, to rejoice, even in the midst of some very trying circumstances in our life. Help us, I pray, and help our church, those listening, and then if there is one who sits among us tonight that is not saved, I do want to pray for them that they'll be saved before it's eternally too late. Help them, I pray. May the seed of the Word of God be sown into their heart tonight. I pray and may Jesus get glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us recently in our Wednesday evening services, then you will recall that we are now making our way through the Old Testament book of Psalms, and I'm currently what I'm calling preaching through the Psalms. As we have made our way through this book thus far, we have found that these psalms that we're, that we're moving through touch all the notes on the keyboard of human emotion. For instance, uh, in these psalms, we have seen the writers, and they seem to be at times filled with love, and other times they seem to be filled with hate. Sometimes there's great joy, and other times there's great sorrows. Sometimes there's great hope, and other times there's great fear. Sometimes there's peace, other times there's strife. Sometimes there's great faith, while other times there is great doubt. In other words, we have found and are finding that the Psalms and the writers of these Psalms are made up of the same stuff that our lives are made out of. You know, the writers of the Bible, sometimes I think in our mind we elevate them to a place maybe they shouldn't be elevated to because they were just people just like you and people just like me who suffered from extreme emotions of great spiritual highs to great spiritual lows. These psalms are made up of the stuff that your life and my life is made of. If we'd all be honest tonight, I think all of us would probably have to admit that our lives are somewhat like a roller coaster. 
between uh, the emotions of, of great victory as well as the emotions of great defeat. I remember when I was growing up, there used to be a program that came on Saturday afternoons called The Wide World of Sports. And it came on ABC, and I mean, it had all kinds of sports on it. But when it first came on, it would talk about the, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And it seems to be that that pretty much sums up the Christian life. We're either enjoying the thrill of great victory, victory or we're going through the agony of defeat. But the common denominator of all these psalms thus far seems to be able to be summed up in only four words. And here are those four words. Number one, problems. Number two, pain. Number three, prayer. And number four, praise. Now those four words sum up pretty much the first 28 psalms that we have been through. What would happen is the writer of the psalm would encounter a great problem. That great problem would cause great pain in the psalmist's life. That great pain would cause him to hit his knees and approach God in great prayer. And by the time he got through praying, there was always a, a time for great praise. Those four words pretty much sum up these psalms. And with that being said tonight, we find ourselves all the way up to the 28th chapter or the 28th division of the book of Psalms. And once again, we find, as we have thus far in many of these psalms, that this is a psalm that fell from the pen of David. For we read right under Psalms 28 in the superscription of this psalm, it says it is, it identifies it as a psalm of David. And David, as we know, was a man after God's own heart. David was God's choice. Saul was the people's choice. Saul was a premature king. God had not intended for the nation of Israel to have a king at that particular moment. But Saul, he was the people's choice. They chose him, but David was God's choice, God's leader of the people of God, the nation of Israel. And yet, we find that David was a man who was given to various emotions. At times, it seemed like David was full of awe and splendor. And then there was times when it seemed like David was just full of great hate and vengeance. Once again, I say that's true of all of us. No matter how spiritual we may try to pass ourselves off as being, there ain't a one of us in this room at one time or another that, uh, you know, hadn't had those moments of great, uh, of great awe and great splendor in other moments, times of uh, praying for God's great vengeance. This psalm, Psalms 28, is known as one of those imprecatory psalms. How many of us would be honest and say, man, those are my favorite psalms, them imprecatory psalms. And a precatory psalms was a song uh, that was invoking a curse of God upon somebody. In our terminology, we would say an imprecatory psalm or an imprecatory prayer would be a prayer asking for God to step in and judge somebody, for, for judgment to fall upon somebody. Be like me and you praying for God's wrath to come down upon somebody. Now, I know this is a good church, and I really believe that with all my heart, and I do believe the cream of the crop is sitting right here in this room tonight as well. But if we'd all be honest, how many times have you and I, at one time or another, maybe thought somebody deserved God's judgment? How many of us at one time or another, you know, have thought about asking God to take a hit out on somebody? How many times have at least maybe we thought, God, give them a flat tire and a thunderstorm and let it hail? Or maybe you thought about making somebody a chocolate cake and putting X-lax in the icing and just asking for God to have his way. 
we have all been there before. And that seems to be what is on the mind of David in this particular psalm. Again, the backdrop of the psalm, as I found out in some research this week, is the, is the, uh, the uh, rebellion of David's son, his favorite son, it seems like, Absalom. And we remember how all that came to pass, how Absalom rebelled against his own dad. It's really one of the uh, mysteries, I guess we should say, of the, of the Old Testament. How that Absalom, in a very conniving way, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Well, here's what we read about that in 2 Samuel 15. On this manner did Absalom, David's son, to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. With his ways and with his words, he worked his way into the hearts of the loyal followers of David. In fact, so much the so until the followers of David actually became the followers of Absalom. And then Absalom, realizing that he had the numbers, rose up against his daddy David and he ran him off his throne and he would have killed him if he could have caught him. And David fled, and as I told you before, he is now running for his life again, just like he did back during the days of King Saul. David is facing a great problem in his life. And along with that great problem comes great pain. And then now in our text, we find David resorting to a great prayer uh, regarding this great problem. I wonder how many of us sitting in this room tonight have a great problem right now in our life. Uh, maybe, maybe yours may be some kind of a family issue or maybe some kind of a marital issue or maybe some kind of an issue down on the job with somebody that you're really struggling with right now or maybe a boss man that's very domineering and, and uh, man, just, just you can't seem to catch a break. Or, uh, or maybe, maybe it's somebody that, you know, you live in the neighborhood with or go to school with. Maybe you're right now in the midst of a great problem that has caused some pain in your life. Well, David in Psalms 28 resorts to prayer. And by the way, I'll jump ahead of myself and tell you, by the time the, uh, the psalm is over, he is enjoying a great praise. Problems, pain, prayer and praise. You know, maybe that's one of the reasons that God allows us to go through problems sometimes because all sunshine and no rain makes a desert. Can I have an amen? If it didn't rain, and I don't like the rain, I, uh, especially, you know, where we live at now, I do not like the rain because when it rains, it's always very foggy. And I really don't like that, but yet if we didn't have some rain occasionally, uh, the, the ground would become like cinder blocks. And it would be very difficult. So we have to have rain, and it makes us, number one, appreciate the sunshine more, but it also rains. The dark times do things for us that the sunshine and the light times can't do. And maybe God allows problems to come in our life and pain to enter our life to drive us to our knees. Maybe God, maybe God, God does know that if we never have any problems in life, we'd probably become a little bit callous toward him, thinking we're okay, we don't even need to pray anymore. And God allows us to go through times of struggles in our life because it drives us to our knees. Well, you know yourself that the cupboards are full of groceries and the kids are healthy and the cars are running good and you got a paycheck last Friday, looking forward to getting another one this Friday and, and everything's running, the refrigerator's running well, the dryer's dried and the washer's washing. You know, sometimes there may be a little bit of tendency to kind of set God down over here for just a little bit thinking everything's okay right now. But you let some problems come. It ain't long till we're waiting for the invitation so we can come to the altar and pray about it. Those problems drive us to our knees. 
And maybe that's the reason, one of the chief reasons that God allows us to go through those times of struggles and problems in our life. And so tonight in this text, I want to point out three things about this psalm regarding David's life. First of all, I want you to look at verse 1 and verse number 2, and I want to talk a little bit about this. God's aid requested. God's aid requested. Now, if you'll notice in verse 1 and verse number 2, David is once again requesting for God to help him and God to hear him. Look at verse number 1. Unto thee will I cry, O Lord, my rock. Be not silent to me, lest if thou be silent to me, I become like them that go down into the pit. Hear, hear the voice of my supplications. When I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. Now David is realizing that he needs God's help as never before. Now you can imagine it was tough on David when he was running from Saul back in those earlier days, running from King Saul. Every time a twig snapped or, or uh, uh, the leaves ruffled a little bit, maybe David thought, man, is it Saul? Is it his armies? Are they upon me? You can just imagine living like that, not knowing from what. In fact, he said on one occasion, there is a, but a step between me and death. You can imagine living with uh, absolutely no hope of tomorrow whatsoever, just thinking at any moment you could die. That was David's case in the days of Saul. But can you imagine how much more difficult it would be if you're once again running for your life, but this time you're not running from an outsider, you're running from an insider. Can you imagine the gamut of the emotions that you would have when one of your own children rises up against you, runs you out of your own house, off of your own throne, and if that isn't bad enough to add insult to injury, he's trying to kill you. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Anybody in this room that's ever had family problems or children that's gone bad can kind of, I guess, sympathize with where David is at in all this. You can just imagine how he feels, the treachery, the betrayal, the, heart, the heartache. And David in verse 1 and verse number 2 indicates to us that at a time like this, he does not want God to become two things. Look, if you will, in verse 1. Number 1, he does not want God to become silent. And verse number 2, he does not want God to become still. You know, there's two things that every one of us ought to fear. Number 1, God's silence. And number two, God's stillness. If there's one thing that we as God's people that ought to terrify our heart, it would be for God to stop speaking to us, to get silent. And it would be for God to quit working in our behalf, for God to become still. You know, we're told on two or two or three separate occasions throughout the Bible, uh, you know, that where God became still, where God did not work. We're told in Mark chapter 6 and verse number 5, he went back to the city of Nazareth, and Nazareth was his hometown. Now you would think in Nazareth, I mean, it's God's son, the Lord Jesus. The fame has been spread abroad all over Judea and Galilee, what he's been doing. You would think he would receive a hero's welcome when he went back to his hometown. And yet we read here in Mark 6 verse number 5, he could do there, Nazareth, he could do there no mighty work. And that verse goes on to say, because of their unbelief. You know what happened? God went back, Jesus went back to Nazareth, and because of their unbelief, he became still. 
Who knew what could actually have happened there in the city of Nazareth if the people would have just believed him, and yet by their unbelief they stealed the Son of God. They hindered the great work that the Son of God could do. We do not want God to become still. You know, as a church family, we, we don't want God to become still. We want God to move when we come to church. Can I have an amen? I mean, that's one thing we ought to pray. God, uh, we open the doors, and God, we want you to walk in our church, and we want you to move in the service this morning. We do not want God to become still, and we do not want God to become silent. Can I have an amen? There are times throughout the Word of God that we find that God became silent. Let me read you a verse. It's just over a few Psalms, but in Psalms 50 we read this. Uh, These things hast thou done. And here's what God said. And I kept silence. If there's one thing that we don't want God to do, we don't want God not to speak. We want to hear the voice of God. I'm thinking about Cain now. Remember after Cain killed Abel and God come down and God speaking to him and he said... uh, uh, to Cain, where's your brother? And he said, am I my, am I my brother's keeper? And, and uh, God knew what had happened. And, and the Bible said that Cain was driven from the presence of the Lord. Remember that? And then the Bible goes on to say this, uh, that uh, he was driven from the presence of the Lord. And Cain said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Remember that? You know, one of the things that I think played into that statement from Cain is that Cain, being driven from the presence of the Lord, would never hear the sweet, tender voice of God again. Boy, if there's one thing you and I ought to never take for granted, it's hearing the voice of God. I've never heard his voice audibly. God's never called out of heaven and just stopped me in my tracks and just audibly the heavens rang. Never heard that. But I promise you, there have been some undeniable times in my life when I know God spoke to my heart. Through that still, small, tender voice, God said, do something. God said, don't do something. God spoke to me. I know it was the voice of God. And can I tell you something? I never want to get to the place that God gets silent in my life. I always, watch this, want to have my antennas up. I always want to have the receiver on just in case God speaks to me. I want to be listening for the Lord. And David here in this psalm in verse number 1, he said, Lord, I'm in a mess if you get silent right now. Is that not what he said in verse number 1? Why, he said, if you become silent, I'm going to be like those that go down into the pit or into the grave. David said, I might as well... Look at me now. I might as well be dead if you don't speak to me. If you get silent, if you quit helping me in verse number number 2, if you don't hear me, if you don't help me, God, I'm a goner. I might as well be dead. Boy, I tell you what, we never want God to become still. We never want God to become silent. Can I throw this one at you? In Luke chapter 23, we have the story of the great silence of the Son of God. And look at this, if you will. Let me read it to you. It's about Herod. Herod was the man that Jesus called a fox one time. Can you imagine Jesus calling somebody a fox? Well, here's what happened. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season. Now, to put you where we're at, Jesus has been arrested. He's already appeared before Pilate. Pilate found out he's from, uh, he's from uh, Galilee, so Pilate sends him to Herod, who's the ruler over that particular part. And he sends him over there to Herod. And, and Herod wanted to see him because... Herod wanted to see Jesus do some kind of a miracle, maybe pull a rabbit out of the hat 
or uh, maybe cause something to disappear. That's the reason we read on down there. He hoped at the last phrase, he hoped to have seen some miracle. He'd heard so much about Jesus, he was wanting to see him. Hey, Jesus, pull a rabbit out of the hat. Hey, Jesus, make an elephant disappear. Hey, Jesus, do this, do that. And yet here's all he got out of Jesus, the next verse. Then he questioned him in many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. Oh, the silence of God is deafening. When God refuses to speak, by the way, he'd already beheaded John the Baptist. He'd crossed the line. It was over. He would no longer be spoken to by God once more. It was done. And no matter how much he pleaded, how much he begged, God had become silent. He answered him not a word. Boy, we don't want God to become silent. But we ought to keep our hearts in such a condition, ladies and gentlemen. We ought to, as the old timers used to say, we ought to stay on praying ground. But we ought to keep our sins confessed and keep our hearts clean and clear from bitterness and, and anything that would hinder us from being able to pray and talk to him. We don't want God to become silent. If we ever lose the voice of God and the move of God, indeed great is the loss at Woodland Baptist Church if God ever becomes silent and refuses become still. Great indeed is the law. There are churches all over America tonight, folks, that God hadn't been in in years. There are folk, there are churches all over America where people will gather this coming Sunday. I don't have any one church in mind. I'm just telling you, there are churches in America that got fancy stained glass windows. They got a steeple on top. They got padded pews, songbooks, pulpits. But I'm telling you, God himself hadn't been in there in years. He moved out. Boy, I don't want God to move out. God's aid requested. God, I need your help. You know what you need tonight? If you're in trouble, boy, you need God's help. You say, preacher, I need counseling. No, you don't. You need God's help. I'm not against counseling, but why don't we just pick it up and carry it to God and get it right together? God's aid requested. Number two. Notice beginning in verse 3, 4, and 5, God's aid requested. But notice verse 3, 4, and 5, God's adversaries rejected. Look, if you will, at verse 3. Draw me not away with the wicked, with the workers of iniquity. We speak peace to their neighbor, but mischief is in their heart. They say one thing, they mean something else. They do something else. Look at verse 4. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them after the work of their hands. Render to them their desert. Uh, verse 5, because they regard not the works of the Lord nor the operation of his hands, he, God, shall destroy them and not build them up. Boy, David is praying down the judgment of God now. I really, maybe, I don't think, he, I don't think he's doing that upon Absalom because I think we understand, and I think I put this verse up on the screen, but when, he, when, he, when a, uh, J, uh, Joab and the rest of those warriors struck off that day to fight with Absalom, David said, when it comes to Absalom, and I may not put it in there, but he said, deal gently with the young man for my sake. You know what? I don't think David is praying this for Absalom, but I do think he's praying this for those that surround Absalom, that's counseling Absalom. You know, we've got to be careful who we get our counsel from. Can I have an Amen. 
If you're having marital problems, you probably don't want to get your counsel from the lady at the beauty shop who fixes hair that's on her seventh marriage. That's probably not a good place to get your counsel. Um, you don't want to get your counsel from, from uh, somebody who's got a track record that's anything but good. If you want to get counsel, you ought to seek out somebody that's familiar with the Bible, that walks with God, that knows that they're on praying terms with God. Those are the kind of people you want to get your counsel. In fact, can I tell you this? Many times when I do marital counseling and one spouse has walked off and uh, the man or the woman and they're with somebody else or they're talking to people down on the job that they work with and those people, uh, one of the first things we've got to pray for is that God will surround them with people who will give them the right kind of counsel because I'm here to tell you the Bible still says that evil communications corrupt good manners. We have to be careful when we get our counsel at. Maybe David is praying for those that surrounding Absalom, maybe Ahithophel and some of that other crowd that's given Absalom counsel. Maybe David is praying, Oh God, bring down judgment upon those people. And then he reminds us in verse 4 and verse number 5 about two things according to the judgment of God. First of all, look at verse number 4. We are reminded that when it comes to judgment, God always judges righteously. Look, if you will, at verse number 4. Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them after the work of their hands. Render to them their... You know what he's saying? God, give them what they deserve. God, judge righteously. You know, when it comes to salvation, God deals in grace, not works. Can I have an amen? When it comes to us being saved, God deals in grace. Not You and I can't work our fingers enough. We can't give God enough money. We can't light enough candles. We can't get baptized enough in the baptistry. We can't turn over enough new leaves. God's salvation is according to grace and not works. But now look at me and come here. When it comes to judgment, God's judgment is according to works and not grace. God's judgment is according to works. In other words, what I'm saying if, is a man, if a man rejects God's grace, God will judge him according to his works. Oh, brother, I don't want God to judge me according to my works. Do you? That's the reason in Revelation 20, 13, when everything is said and done, the final analysis of the judgment of the great white throne, here's what we read. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which are in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their... What's the next word? Judgment is according to works and not grace. Salvation is according to grace and not works. That's a principle laid down in the Word of God. Now hear me near me well. When God judges somebody, it'll be right. You know, in our day, sometimes we hear about judges and juries getting it wrong. And they send a man off and he, and he sits in prison for 20 years till he's finally exonerated because of DNA evidence. Well, we hear a lot about that in our day. And the judge and the jury got it wrong. But can I tell you something? When it comes to God, he is both judge and jury. And look at me, he's never got it wrong. And he never will get it wrong. And judgment will be according to their works. You know, in our day, we hear people constantly saying, I want what I deserve. Or we hear people say, I want what I'm entitled to. Or, or they say something like, the, I want what's coming to me. Friend, when it comes to judgment, forget all that. You don't want what you deserve. You don't want what you're entitled to. You don't want what's coming to you. You want grace. You want mercy. You think about that. Here's an old boy that's rejected Jesus, and he stands before God, and every evil work and deed and thought 
one by one is called out and his past judgment is passed upon that individual. I don't know about you, but friend, I don't want that. I don't want what I deserve. Amen. And I'm glad because of mercy I won't get it. God judges righteously. But then look at verse number 5. God judges reasonably. Look at verse 5. Because they regard not the works of the Lord, nor the operations, the operation of his hand. So here's a man that's lived his whole life that's ignored God. They have, that verse number 5, they've regarded not the works of the Lord. I mean, they see creation and they know this just didn't happen, friend. Am I right? There was just not an explosion and voila, everything that there is happened. Are you kidding me? There's no way. Now, I'll tell you what, this world didn't start with a big bang, but it's going to end with a big bang. Because we read over in the book of Peter that the earth and the heaven are going to pass away with a great noise. So it's going to end with a big bang, but it didn't start with a big bang. Can I have an amen? So here's God and he's done all of this and people just ignore it. And then it goes on to say there in verse 5, and I'm almost done. It said they, they regard not the operation of his hands. God tenderly and gently pulls at them. God woos them. The Spirit of God passes by them. And they just constantly ignore it, push it away. Well, can I tell you something? It would almost be wrong of God to take somebody like that that didn't want anything to do with God in this life and make, let him die and make him go to heaven and live with him forever. That would almost be wrong of God to do that. I mean, if they don't have time for God here, why should God have time for them there? His judgment is always according to reason. Absalom suffered a reasonable judgment of God. See him hanging there. 2 Samuel 18 and verse 5. See him hanging there. The king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai. Those were the commanders of his army. He said, boys, he said, look at me now. You deal gently for my sake with the young man. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. And yet we know what Joab did. He got some darts in his hand. Oh, Absalom's caught up in the boughs of that tree by his head. And he goes by and throws, throws three darts in the heart of Absalom and he dies. And can I tell you something? Don't be mad at me. He deserved that. He got what was coming to him. And can I just say if you die without God, you're going to get what's coming to you? God's judgment is righteous. God's judgment is, is reasonable. If you reject God here, God will reject you there. And then on the flip side of that, you make room for God here, God will make room for you there. So we have this, and I'm done. We have God's aid requested, God's adversaries rejected, and then as the psalm ends, we have God's authority respected. Notice what happens, verse 6. Blessed be the Lord... David now in verse 1 and verse 2, he's saying, Oh God, you got to help me. Don't get silent and don't get still. you got to help me. Look at verse 6. Blessed be the Lord because he hath, past tense, heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him. I am helped, therefore my heart greatly rejoiceth with my song. Will I? And, and, and you can read on down through there. But look at verse 7. Two things he said there. Number one, the Lord, I'm sorry, verse 6. He said, the Lord heard me, verse 7, and the Lord helped me. Now let me tell you something. You can always count, if you're a child of God and you're right with God, you can always count on, number one, the Lord hearing you. And number two, the Lord will help you. Can I have an amen? The Lord will hear you. And the Lord will help you.
And this psalm ends, great problem, great pain, great prayer, and great praise. I don't know what you're going through tonight. Maybe some kind of a problem, but if you need the Lord, David said, he hath heard my supplication, and he hath helped me. So if you need for God to hear you, and you need for God to help you, you meet God where God is, and he'll help you tonight. Let's bow our heads. Father.